Good evening, everybody. Let's let's get settled. Let's get settled in our seats. And let there be a hush. Come over, everyone. How about those hogs, baby? Oh, Chris Stapleton? <laughs> That's Garland, so uh, yeah, thanks, man. Uh, how about those hogs, man? I'm from Texarkana, so the hatred of Texas is really deep in me, so uh, that's a big deal. Raise your hand if you uh, rushed the field last night. Come on, man. That's awesome. Any of y'all rush the field? No, no, no? Cool. Band's too cool. Band's too cool. Um, hey, Two, two quick things before we get started with worship. Uh, number one, uh, we haven't made an announcement about it this year, but we talked a lot about it last year. Uh, there's a thing called the Creatives Initiative that we like to do in college. And all this is, is it's, a, um, it's an avenue for you if you're creative in any way. So it may be music or songwriting or poetry, uh, spoken word, photography, videography, anything like that. Um, any creative outlet, we want you to be able to serve our church body at Fellowship College through that creative ability. So if that interests you at all, um, if you've got some kind of creative bend like that, uh, come find me after the service. I'm running lights uh, tonight, so I'll be in the back booth after this. And so come find me. Let's talk. I've got some paperwork for you to fill out and and tell you more about that. So that's the Creatives Initiative. You can also, if you got a roll right after, you can email me at ryburton at fellowshipnwa.org. All right, next, uh, serve. So kind of along with that, uh, we, we want to really serve, not just in Fellowship College, um, but throughout um, totally a ton of different avenues. So that could be uh, Sunday morning stuff. It could be Celebrate Recovery on Friday nights. It could be different ministries throughout the city. Um, so, if you would, take a picture of that QR code, and you can fill out um, a short little questionnaire um, to get more information on that. That includes, like, if, if you are musically talented, we could use you on Sunday nights as well. Specifically, keys. If, um, Joanna's coming in from Siloam uh, to play keys tonight, so, like, um, so that she doesn't have to drive every week. That'd be great. Um, so, so, anything like that, if, if you have uh, any musical ability... Would love for you to fill that stuff out. That info will come to me and I'll get in touch with you. So with that, let's pray. Father God, you are good and you're merciful to us. God, the excitement that we come off of after something like a big win in a football game is, that's a common grace that you've given us and that's a, it's a joy that we can experience. But God, May we be reminded that that amount of joy, that amount of happiness pales in comparison in being in your presence. God, that one day the fullness of our joy will be realized. And what an overwhelming thing that will be. So Father, remind us of that this evening. Remind us of that as we go on throughout the week of that in our conversations and our choices in our day-to-day. -day. You're good. You're worthy of this praise. It's in your son's name.
Colossians chapter 1, verse 12. And we joyfully give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen? This next song we're about to sing was written by fellowship. It's called I Belong to Christ. And it's one of my favorites. That we can declare in faith as we sing that we don't belong to opinions, we don't belong to riches, but we belong to Christ Jesus. The God that just created all of that calls us his. And Ephesians tells us that it's not because we were good enough for it, but because of his grace and his love for us. So as you guys learn it, let's sing this song.
Those are the words that we just sang, and I don't think I'm alone in this, but I think that's pretty hard to believe. If I know that God is holy and that he's always right, when I look at myself, sometimes the only thing I can think of is all of the ways that I'm not stacking. But I find a lot of comfort in this. I'm gonna read this passage from the book of Micah, chapter seven, verses eight and nine. I think we have a friend in Micah here. He says, do not gloat over me, my enemy, Though I have fallen, I will rise. And though I sit in darkness, Yahweh will be my light. Because I've sinned against him, I will bear Yahweh's wrath. Until he pleads my case and upholds my cause, he will bring me out into the light, and I will see his righteousness. And when I first read this passage, I could have sworn I read it wrong. Because he says that I've sinned against God, and I'm gonna bear his wrath, but the next line says, that God's gonna plead his case and uphold his cause. What kind of God is like that? A God that we can offend, a God that we can sin against that he will still defend us. Here's one thing, one observation. Micah knew his sin and he confessed it. I don't think confession has to be as, as difficult to understand or as spiritual of a word as we make it out to be. I think confession it's just agreeing with God that we've done something wrong. I think that's a good way to put it. And so I'd love for you guys for just a moment, if you guys wanna take a seat, we're gonna spend a few moments thinking about that. There's a little more in this text to unpack, but I wanna start here. If we would, let's bow our heads and let's think, and if we need to pray and confess things to God, let's do that, be in right relationship with him.
But I think with God, that's just not the end of the story. He's not an angry God who sits in heaven waiting for us to make mistakes. But a God that defends us and loves us and forgives us. First John tells us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I love this passage, that last line, I know that I've done this wrong thing, but I have this confidence God will bring me out to see the light and I will see his righteousness. Micah's name in the Hebrew means who is like God. How fitting. What kind of God forgives in this way? What, for, what kind of God would call us his own? In light of our failures, all the ways that we fall short, he would still call us his. And I think we can sing in confidence today that we belong to him. I belong to Christ, my King. I belong to him, drawn by his kindness, found in his love. I belong to Christ. Would you guys stand with me and sing? Now I belong to his kingdom.
This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. I'm not going to say it, but three weeks ago, right here, I made a bold prediction. If you remember, this was it. And so far, we're two for two. All right, we are two for two. Bring on the Aggies. I'm ready. Their quarterback got hurt yesterday. I knew it. I felt good about it. It's my cold, stone cold lock before the season started. Take it to the bank. That's what I said. Profit. All right? Profit. I'm feeling good about it. Uh, last night, I got to take my son. This is my son, Titus, to the game. He, says he got indoctrinated last night. Uh, he got more and more angry at Texas as the game went on. This was toward the end of the game, and we were already crushing them. And by then, I was like, I am a good father. I have succeeded. Every time they ran that Texas flag on our end zone, losing by three touchdowns, he was like, I hate them. I said, the only fans worse are Aggies. All right, so we got to go to the game last night. I saw many of you on the uh, Jumbotron. I saw many of you on the field. Uh, what a night it was. Uh, we're, we're still kind of celebrating in our house, but uh, we, we gotta talk about Psalms. As we continue in our Psalms study, um, what... What I've noticed is there's, there's certain stories and a certain kind of story that we love to tell. It's the kind of story that we love to we tell it in our movies, we tell it in our novels, we tell it in our TV shows. A lot of those things have very similar story elements in common. Let me, let me illustrate it for you this way. If you've never read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, here's the, the introductory plot, all right? Here's the plot to this part of the Chronicles of Narnia. There's a dark evil over all of the land of Narnia. And there's a wicked queen, and she reigns in terror and evil. And everything is turned to, to winter and cold. But there's this whisper that there's this long-awaited king, that Aslan is coming. And when he returns, he'll turn everything to spring. And everything will now be put right when he returns. Like we actually love this story, this basic story, we tell it over and over and over again. It's back in our ancient mythology, back to like good King Arthur and his knights, when we have this good king who will come and he'll bring blessing when he comes. It's in our modern mythology, not that one, this one. It's in our modern mythology as well. Think about the same plot. We've got an evil in the land and his name is Scar. He's the worst and he's killed the rightful king. And he's brought everything in Pride Rock to ruin and evil and darkness. But there's a descendant of Mufasa, and he's out there. And when he returns, he will defeat the enemy and restore balance to the circle of life. We love these kind of stories about the awaited one, the promised one, the one who is coming. And when he comes, he will defeat evil. The easiest way to see it, probably the movie where it's most clear, the story where it's most clear is in Lord of the Rings. Who's read or seen Lord of the Rings? Okay, that's, you gotta read it, all right, or see it. More of you need to go watch the movies. They're kind of dated now, but here's the plot of Lord of the Rings. Same plot. Sauron has conquered Middle-earth and brought evil and destruction everywhere he has gone, but there's a whisper that there's the good king from the north, and when he comes, the, the descendant of Isildur, when he comes, he will bring healing with his hands and goodness to the world. Now, here's what's so interesting about this narrative, what's so interesting about the story. 
we are so drawn to this very same idea, this same, very same story that actually our politicians run on something kind of like this story. If you elect me or my party or my platform, then what'll happen is we'll restore goodness, we'll restore balance, we'll make things good or great again just to elect me or the other guy says the same thing. Both guys and girls say all the same things. Elect us, our party, our platform, we'll bring good and healing and justice to the world. And yet, here's the problem. That same power, that same darkness, it never seems to really go away. Like that same power, that same force on the land that brings hurt and pain and injustice and wounds and tragedy. It's like, man, is this, is this king ever gonna show up? Where is he? We have this thing in all of us that loves this story, that loves this narrative, this story where we're looking for the hero, we're looking for the rescuer, we're looking for the answer. We're looking for this king or this queen who will come and bring goodness and healing to the land when he comes or when she comes. What we're gonna see is this is an ancient story. It's actually the story that is driving so much of this thing we call the Bible. And it's gonna be the story in the backdrop of Psalm chapter two as we dive in there tonight. I'm calling this Kiss the king, you heard it read a minute ago. You'll see it in the passage, just a minute, why I'm calling it that. And here's our three questions that are gonna drive our time tonight. First, we gotta ask the question, what in the world even is a king? Because we're Americans, a lot of us in the room, and we began our nation rejecting the king. So what is a king, especially in the ancient world? Second, why do we hate a king? And lastly, why do we need a king? That second point, I listened to, uh, let me give credit where it's due. Years ago, I can't remember when this was, I listened to a Tim Keller sermon on Psalm 2. And his second point was something like, we, we hate a king or we hate the king or something like that. And somewhere deep in my subconscious, that was lodged in there. And so that's your second point. So I'm giving, let me give credit out to Pastor Tim Keller in New York. It's somewhere in my brain and I know that's what he said or something like this. Here's our three questions. What is a king? Why do we hate a king? And why do we need a king? If you got your Bibles, open them up. Psalm 2, digital device, whatever you got, go to Psalm 2 with me. As you're going there, we gotta get, gotta get oriented to what's going on in the Psalms. The Psalms, as we've been saying these last couple weeks, the book of Psalms, really it's actually the five books of Psalms, they are a collection of ancient Hebrew, which is a Middle Eastern people group. It's an ancient Hebrew collection of poems. And these poems help, help orient this group of people to their God so they can orient themselves to each other and the surrounding nations. And these psalms help them to tell their story and to pray their story as a gathered community. And Psalm 2, it's very strategically placed after Psalm chapter 1. We're going to look at it later. But Psalm chapter 2 is really, really strategically placed, and it is a coronation psalm, a coronation psalm. Poem. It's meant to be read the day the king ascends his throne. It's a psalm about the kings. And what we're gonna see is this psalm is gonna have, this is what uh, like Bible scholars call this, go here with me, a near referent and a far reference. Now, I get it, most of you are like, I don't know what that means. Have you ever been driving to Colorado, especially if you're driving to Colorado to go skiing or hiking from this part, this side of the Rockies. If you have, you've probably had a similar experience to what I've had when I've gone out there. You get excited, you pack your stuff, you're ready to go, and then you get up to Kansas and you're thinking, this ain't gonna be that bad. And then like 10 hours 
later. You hadn't seen a mountain, a hill, or a tree, or even a curve in the road for like nine hours. And if you're from Kansas in here, I hate to tell you, your state sucks, all right? And we all think that. So we all feel that way about your state. We can't wait to leave your state when we get in it. If you're from there, we still love you. We're glad you're here. You probably love being down here. So when you're driving out to Colorado and you're going through Kansas, you finally have this experience. You see the mountains. You're like, finally, 10 hours of this. And you see the mountains. And when you see those mountains, all the mountains in that mountain range, they look like they're side by side. They look right next to you. They're kind of facing you. But as you get closer and closer to the mountains, what you realize is you kind of go around or up and over one. And then the mountains that look side by side, actually, this mountain was three hours between this one and this. And there's a valley all in between. What looked like side by side actually had three hours worth of distance. What we're going to see as we look at Psalm chapter 2 is there's going to be a near mountain, a near referent about the ancient Israelite kings. But then there's going to be a far mountain, this concept of the, the true king, the promised king, the one that we're waiting for and looking for. So we got to have that double referent in mind when we look at it. By the way, that double reference in a lot of the passages in your Old Testament. This is happening pretty regularly with the Old Testament, what the New Testament writers do with it. But let's look at it. Psalm 2, 1 to 3. This psalm is broken up into four stanzas with three verses each. My English majors in the room, you're real happy today. There's like two of you in here, I know. Four stanzas, three verses each. Here's the first stanza. And you can, I want you to write in your Bibles next to this stanza. Write this down. The kings of the earth rage. The kings of the earth rage. And you can see it right here. They, they band together against Yahweh and his anointed saying, we don't want a king. We'll break their chains and throw off their, bond, their, their, their fetters on us. And then the one in heaven responds. And I want you to write next to the second stanza, verses four to six. You can write this down. God has chosen a king. The kings of the earth rage, stanza two, God has chosen a king. Look at, look at verse six. Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, says, I have installed my king. I've installed him on Zion. And it brings this question to mind. What's the deal with kings? Like, what's up with kings? We don't have one. And I think what they do in Britain is weird. So what's the deal with kings? Because for us, I'm guessing most of us are Americans in the room. For us, when we think of kings, we might think of something like this. Like when we think of kings, we think those are, this is obviously the silly example, but think about what he says even in, the Ham in Hamilton the musical. He says, you will love me and obey me and serve me or else I'm gonna kill all your friends and all your family. Like that's what we think of when we think of kings. They are, they are dictators, they're tyrannical, they're narcissistic, they always take they never give. In fact, we began as a nation saying, we hate the king, we reject the king, we will have no kings. We wrote it in our very declaration. Hear it. Let's read some Declaration of Independence here. I'll, I'll read it to you. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, under the king, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government, the king, and to provide new guards for their future security. Doesn't that just make you want to watch National Treasure? All of you right now are like, I'm going to watch that tonight. And by the way, you should. I just reached, we watched both of them. They don't age. Those movies are like fine wine. They just get better every time I watch them. I let, I let all three of my kids watch them, and they were in. 
on these movies. I know they're silly, but they're wonderful. I love both. I hope they make a trilogy. They can make 10 of them for all I care, and Nick Cage better be in every single one of them. But so what's the deal with kings? Since we don't have a king, and we started as a nation saying we better not have a king, what, what's the function of a king, especially in the ancient Near Eastern world? Well, let's, let's try to get uh, our minds around this, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna draw it out for you. Here's how kings function in the ancient world. You've got the gods, the deities. Egyptians have theirs, Mesopotamians have theirs, Hittites have theirs, Israelites, it's Yahweh. And you have the deities or the gods. And then you have all the people down here, and you need someone to mediate that relationship. Enter the king. The king's role in the ancient Near Eastern world is to represent the deity to the people. He appeases the gods. He makes sure the gods are happy and fed and taken care of and they get all they want. And then through that king, that king will now bring the goodness and the blessing of that deity into the land. That's the function of the deity. And as a result, the king has a very special position, a very special place. They commune with the divine. This is why, by the way, in a lot of ancient worlds, the king was seen as like a demigod figure. That's what the Sphinx is, by the way. It's a king represented as like a demigod-like figure. The kings were seen as superhuman, or they received a godlike status. Some were even elevated to the, pla to the place of the gods. And here comes Psalm 2 along and says, Yahweh says, I have installed my king, my king in Jerusalem. This king is the one, by the way, this is the last stanza. This is the one that you shall serve. This is the one that you shall bow down before. When it says, kiss the son, that's not like a, like a oh, we're in love makeout session. What it is talking about is bowing before the king and kissing his feet, giving your allegiance and your devotion to him. Yahweh says, I have installed my king, and you better worship and serve him, but hate the king. Why? This psalm is so instructive in what it is teaching. I want you to get, want you to get your heart and your mind around it. Look at the first stanza again, the first three verses. I think this summarizes perfectly both the ancient cry for rebellion against kings and the modern Western idea of individual autonomy. It's the the rallying cry for the Western culture. We'll get there, but see what they say. Here's the stanza. Or stanza one. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they rise up and the rulers, they band together against, when you see all caps Lord, that's the, the name for the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh, and against his, the word for anointed here is the, his Mashiach, his Messiah. And here's what they say. Verse three so perfectly summarizes what is in every single one of us. It summarizes what's essentially said in the garden in Genesis three, when humanity will say this, Adam and Eve, it's summarized in these ancient kings and it's summarized in our culture now. Here's what they say. Here's what we have always been saying. I will not be ruled. No one will tell me what to do. I will determine the fate of my life. Here's how they say it. These kings wanna, they wanna put a chain or a yoke over us. They say, kiss your feet, kiss the feet of the king on Zion. No way. Verse three, let us break 
they are chains. This word for chain, it's the concept of being yoked to something, having an instrument of subjugation placed over you. They say, we will break our chains and throw off our shackles. This is an ancient Near Eastern poem that I think gets at the heart of the Western modern American mantra. I will not be ruled. I mean, we've, we've codified it in so many different ways. This is from the poem Invictus. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. We have our, our cultural ideas like this. Don't you dare tread on me. I am free. I have liberty. You, you get a king near me, that king's going down. I mean, I love, I love the state of New Hampshire, by the way. They put it on their license plate. Live free or die. Sound like grandma driving around, like, I'm not messing with her. I mean, you live free or I will kill you or I'll die trying, but somebody's dying. That's crazy. Live free or die. It's this codified idea that I am autonomous. I captain my life. And obviously it's been I think it's been codified in these kind of cultural sayings that we have now in our culture. Now, let me interact with these for just a moment. The great sin of our modern American culture is this. Here's the great sin. The great evil in our world right now is this. For anyone to tell you how you should live, who you can love, who you can sleep with, what you get to do, what you get to be. And the way we say that is this. Don't you judge me. Don't judge me. I'm gonna live my life. Don't you judge me. Now, it's so a part of our culture. It's the air we breathe. We all are gulping it down without even realizing it. Let me interact with that. We need to think for a moment, whether you're a Jesus follower in the room or not. I wanna ask you to go here with me just for a couple of minutes. I want you to think. A couple of points of, maybe some pushback on this modern notion that we determine our truth, that we are the captain of our faith, the masters of our soul. The first point of, of pushback I wanna give is this. Just, just go here with me. First is this. Our culture says we have autonomy. I'm an, I, my individual freedom, that's the most basic part of who I am. I can determine truth for me. I decide what gives me meaning. First point of pushback is this. You're not remotely as autonomous as you think you are. Most of what you believe, stand for, fight for, even strong things you believe, most of that is from who raised you and where, the friends you've had around you, and the voices you've chose to listen to, whether that be uh, religious people, pastors in your life, or politicians, or social media in your life, the media around you. Who, you, who raised you and where, uh, the friends you've chosen to have, and the voices you let speak into you. And whether you are really conservative or really progressive, what you believe really strongly, largely is a result of those three things, not because you discovered truth on your own. You're not nearly as autonomous as you think you are. Here's the second pushback I wanna give you. And this is way more serious, so hear me, lean in. If you say, I determine my truth, I determine meaning, don't you dare judge me. 
This is what our culture's mantra is. You say that. And then at the same time, you say, I want to have a life that I know I matter. I know that I'm significant. I know that I measure up. I know that I'm beautiful enough, or whatever you want to say. Those things will always be at odds. Here's why. You say, I want to have a life of meaning and significance where I know I measure up, where I know I'm beautiful. And yet you also say, I determine what's true in my life. Then now your meaning and your significance is only ever as strong as how you feel about your meaning and significance at any given moment. You will bring upon yourself a roller coaster because your assurance of your significance, your assurance of your beauty, your assurance that you matter is tethered to how strong you feel about it and your truth in that one moment. Hey, by the way, welcome to anxiety. Do you realize, this is at the very heart of why so many of us are filled with anxiety, filled with fear, terrified to face the future, and and struggling with so much depression. I determine truth, but I wanna know I'm beautiful and significant. Those were always gonna be at odds. We need something outside of ourselves to give us our significance, to tell us that we matter, to tell us that we measure up. And here's the worst part. Each one of us knows it. Each person that you come in contact with that isn't following Jesus knows it. And what we do is we reach out and ask something to give us our significance. Ask something to give us our sense of beauty or to help us know that we matter. We do it with celebrities. We do it with political ideologies. We do it with social progressive ideology or social conservative ideologies, we say, if, it's why, by the way, we love deep down, we deep down, all of us, when we reach out for that something to give us our source of significance, what we do is we end up crowning kings and queens of our culture. We do it with politicians, we do it with celebrities, we do it with, uh, we do it with sports celebrities, we do it with musicians, we do it with movie stars. And the problem is, it's even deeper than that. We do it in church, We say, this pastor or this music uh, worship culture or whatever it may be, they, if I could get connected to them or or I listen to them, this person's my hero, they help me know that I matter. And so many stories we're being bombarded with in our culture right now of even these church people bringing nothing but brokenness, never measuring up. We're, We're trying to crown kings and queens, but they're kings and queens that can never measure up. And it gets even more subtle than that. Uh, It's just interesting. John Calvin, the great reformer, said this. The human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is, from his mother's womb, expert in inventing idols. We are crowning kings and queens. If it's not a celebrity or a political ideology or something like that, then we'll end up doing it with something much more near, like a relationship. We'll enter into a relationship. We'll become way overly codependent, and we know it deep in our gut, but this person helps us know that we're beautiful. This person's affection tells us that we matter. We do it with groups of people, with friend groups around us. These people thinking that we're funny, or these people thinking that we're attractive, or those people thinking that we're sexy, and we say, that helps me know that I'm beautiful and gives me my significance. It tells me that I measure up. We crown kings and queens 
around us, and they can never, ever measure up. They promise much and always underdeliver, and they leave us broken and hurting and desperate. We have two problems. We need something outside of us to tell us that we're significant and we matter. And the things we're reaching out for, they're not grand enough, they're not big enough, they're not beautiful enough, and it leaves us empty. We hate a king, but we need a king. Like in us, there's something about us that desperately says, I'll determine truth, I'm the master of my fate, but we desperately need king. Let's look at the psalm. Remember back in the first stanza, the kings of the earth, they rise up and the rulers band together against Yahweh and his Mashiach, his Messiah, and they say, we don't want a king. Don't you dare try to rule us. We will not be ruled. And then look, look at the response. This is the third stanza, the one we haven't looked at yet. Yahweh's king, his anointed, responds and says this. This is why it's a coronation psalm on the king's enthronement day. Yahweh said, you are my son. Today, I become your father. Yahweh's established a king that he has such closeness with that he can call son and that that king can call father. And through this king, he will bring the blessing of the creator God, the God that made all that we saw in that amazing video that had me literally to the point of tears in the back. That God that made all of that, he wants to bring his blessing out to the nations through that king. And all those would-be kings and queens that end up breaking us and leaving us for dead and letting us down, all of those, he says, we're gonna dash them to pieces like pottery. Remember, We said there's a near referent and there's a far referent, a near mountain and a far mountain. This psalm is about ancient Israelite kings. But I don't know about you, if you've ever read your Old Testament, it's like page after page after page of the kings of Israel sucking. I mean, it's just over and over and over again. And it begins to build. There's something off. This darkness persists. Where is this king? The one through whom the nations will receive their inheritance. It's like we're stuck. In the Old Testament pages, it's page after page after page of more darkness, more frozen, more evil. We can't get out of this. Where's the king? Psalm 2 is this whisper that's just awaiting its fulfillment. It's awaiting its answer. And then, when we turn the page into the New Testament, when we turn the page, what we're gonna see is that whisper that all those stories ultimately have their ultimate reference point. That whisper has come to be. The answer has come. Look at Mark chapter one. This is amazing. Jesus, the very first thing that he does in his public proclamation of who he is to the people of Israel. The very first thing that happens is he's brought to his baptism. And remember, the drawing about what a king is, the the go-between between the gods and the people, between Yahweh and his people. We're looking for a king that can be the bridge of those two things. 
And literally at Jesus' baptism, the deity in the form of the Spirit, Yahweh, shows up. And the voice of the Father speaks. And look at what the Father says. The very first thing, as you turn the pages to your New Testament to get an idea of where's the answer to all this, Psalm 2, verse 11, look at it. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son. This is him. This is the one you've been waiting for. This is the answer. This is the hero. He's here. This is the one I love. And here's what's so fascinating. The very next thing we see Jesus do, if you turn to Mark, you'll see it. The very next thing we see Jesus do is he says, I'm the king, the one you've been waiting for. The king is here. And then he starts doing Yahweh king stuff. He starts bringing healing to the broken around him. He starts offering forgiveness to people that come with their head down. He starts inviting in the sinner and the broken. He proclaims recovery of sight for the blind and freedom for the captives in the year of the Lord's favor. He starts talking about mercy and grace and restoration and freedom and life in him. But it comes with a catch. It's the same catch we saw in Psalm 2. He says, repent. You've got to turn. He says, the, God, the kingdom is here. Now turn. What that means is all other kings, all other queens that would demand your allegiance and your attention, to hell with them. They don't get my attention. To turn, repent. And he says, trust me. It's right out of Psalm 2. Look at what it says. Serve Yahweh with fear. Celebrate his rule. Kiss the sun. Bend down before the sun and kiss his feet. Pay homage to him and him alone. Here's what this means. When there's a difference of opinion on what you think you want to do, a difference of opinion on what you say in your heart or your gut says, this would give me pleasure, and what the scripture says from this king and what he says, you yield. What it means is he determines what is true for you. He determines what you do. He determines how you love. He determines what your future looks like. He determines your values. You bow before the king. He gets your devotion. He gets, by the way, he gets your time. You have to have, spend time giving reverence, and paying homage to this king. Not flippant, not occasionally on a Sunday. Your life and your life's trajectory is on bended knee to this king. Now, here's the thing. I know some of us may be thinking right now, maybe it was what I'd be thinking if I were you. So is this all just submission, surrender, king? Golly. And I know it's Jesus supposed to be cool and all, but this, I don't like the sound of this. Nerdy moment, can we go there? Nerdy moment. I want you to put a bracket or a parenthesis at the very end of Psalm chapter two, okay? A closed bracket or a closed parenthesis. This is cool. Nerdy moment, you ready? At the very end of Psalm 2, put a bracket or a parenthesis that's closing it off. And at the very beginning of Psalm chapter 1, I want you to put an open parenthesis or an open bracket. Uh, most uh, scholars of the book of Psalms see Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 
working together. In the bracket, notice, Psalm 1 begins with, blessed is the one who dot, dot, dot. Psalm 2 ends with, blessed is the one who dot, dot, dot. And those form a bracket. The, the scholarly term is an inclusio, an inclusion. Everything in between is meant to be read together. So we looked at Psalm 1 two weeks ago. What is Psalm 1? Blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his scripture day and night. That one, by the way, is like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. When it says blessed is the one, that's a weird translation for us. We don't, say, we don't walk around saying to people, hey, blessed, blessed should you be today. I wanna be blessed today. We don't use that language very often. What does blessed mean? It means like happy is the one, the good life, the life of abundance, the life of joy. Blessed is the one who delights in the law, Psalm 1. It's supposed to be read with Psalm 2. They form the introduction by which you read all the rest of the Psalms, Psalm 2. Psalm 1 is delight in the law because it will point you to the right king. It will show you the true king. And only when you find this true king will your life truly be the good life. Look at how Psalm 2 ends. Blessed are all who take refuge in this king. The good life is found in taking refuge in him. What is a refuge? If you're in battle and there's arrows and bullets whizzing at you, the refuge is the place where you can get shelter from the arrows and the bullets flying. If you're in a storm and the wind and the rain is beating down on you, the shelter is the place where you've got cover. If you're in a flood, the shelter is the high ground. For some reason, this picture came to my head because so many, the hurricane that we had, the flood that we've seen in Germany and in Japan and in China, this picture came to my head. And the people in all these videos, I know we've all seen them, they're just desperate. And they're crying out for anybody to come rescue and save them. Refuge for them is when that helicopter pulls them out and places them on dry ground and they have shelter from the wind and from the waves. And the psalmist says, blessed are those who take refuge in this king. How can this king, who the psalmist says, kiss his feet, be the refuge for you and for me that provides the good life? How? I want you to see it. This king, he took the wind and the waves on himself he took the arrows and the bullets. He takes them, that pervasive power of evil and brokenness that we see in our world that is the root cause of all the injustice and the pain and the brokenness at a macro and a micro level. We call it sin. He takes that hit on the cross so that we can be hidden in the shadow of his wings, as the psalmist says. He becomes a refuge because he takes the wind and the waves and he gives us this offer. If you find yourself tired and anxious and bloodied and broken and wounded and hurting and not really know where on the turn and, and anointing kings and queens that always kind of let you down and you're here going, I just, I need, I'm dry, I need life. He says, come to me and I'll give you the good life, rest for your soul. He says, take my yoke. It's the same idea of Psalm 2. Be chained to me, but it's not just submission. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light and you will find rest for your souls. Be 
Come enslaved to me. Kiss my feet and you receive refuge for your soul. R.C. Sproul said it this way. The only freedom a person ever has is when they become enslaved to Christ. And here's how we're gonna close. In a minute, I'm gonna ask you to get off your chair. We're gonna get down on our knees uh, as we bow before our king. There's a story in Luke chapter seven. Story of a woman. And uh, she's got a really rough past. She's got a lot of sexual sin in her past, a lot of men in her past, and she's an outcast from her village. And a banquet's being held in her little village. And a lot of the town has showed up to this banquet. And the host of the banquet is this religious elite figure, kind of has her life put together. And this religious elite figure is sort of posturing before everybody else. They, they feel really good about themselves. They're taking their own stand with their life. And they've invited this teacher, this Messiah guy named Jesus, to this banquet. And I imagine the woman nervous and fearful, but there's something about this king that draws her. And as the banquet unfolds, she takes all she has, which is this vial of perfume, which she's probably used to entice men in her past, and she goes up to Jesus and she falls before him. She kneels before him and she's so overwhelmed by the goodness and the grace of this king that she just begins to weep. And those tears begin to fall on Jesus' feet and she, gets to, she begins to dry his feet with her hair and begins to kiss his feet. And those religious elites are sitting there and they go, how dare you, Jesus, let her anywhere near you. Send her away. Get her out of here. Here's my question for you. Whether you're a Jesus follower and have been for a long time or you're like, I don't know about this whole thing, but I'm interested. Or you're like, I don't know about it, but I don't care. Which of those figures is you? Standing to the side, I know, I know how to get the good life. I know the way to joy. I know the way to happiness. I don't need this. I don't want a king like that. I'll determine how I wanna live this thing out or bent down before the king. Here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna invite you to get off your chair. And if you're not a Jesus follower in the room and you're like, this is weird, just, just stay where you're seated. You can judge us all you want. Look down on it, that's cool. Or Please don't actually, but you need to sit there if you, if you, if you want to. If you're a Jesus follower, get out of your chair and I'm gonna invite you down onto your knees. You might have to turn around. It's kind of weird in here. I know we got a lot of chairs are kind of packed in here. But I'm gonna invite you to do this and I wanna ask you, are you kissing king. In your life, do you look more like that woman or more like the religious figure, the religious elite? I'm going to ask you to bow your head and to close your eyes. I'm just going to give you a moment to answer that question. Who determines the trajectory of your life? Who's your king? Father, we pray and we thank you that you've sent the answer to all the stories the hero that we've all been waiting for, the rescuer, the refuge. And it was a merciful king who welcomed in the broken and accepted the doubter. You took the wind and the waves, you took the hit for us, that we might have life and life to the full. So right now, Jesus, we bend the knee before you. We kiss the king, we kiss the son. We want our lives to be reflecting this posture. Pray this in your name, King Jesus.
Amen. Just take a moment. Whenever you're ready, please feel free to stand and sing. Take a moment right now and just kneel before your king.
leave this place, would that be the words on our lips? We sing this song together, Man of Sorrows.
story. The stone is rolled away Behold the message about a king, the good king that brings forgiveness and life, that life to the full. And it's worth celebrating way even more than last night. And what I'm hearing from y'all, even as how you were singing just now, he's worth it. If you're here and uh, you're like, man, I don't know that king, and I think I might want to, uh, our team would love to process that with you. I'll be right here. Some of our team will be out there in the foyer. We'd love to process what it looks like to, to, to kiss this king and find life and life to the full. If you're here and you've made that king your king, uh, but maybe you haven't, uh, you haven't declared that publicly through uh, the sacrament, the ordinance of baptism, we would love to process baptism with you to celebrate together as a family of faith that Jesus is your king. We'd love to process that. If you, either one of those two are you or you just want to hang out, we'll be here. We love you. Have a great week. We'll see you right back here next week. Everybody have a great week.